Welcome to another episode of PH Divas. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And I'm Dr. Zainyao, representing humanities and speaking to you from the heart of empire in London. Today, I'm talking to someone on the other side of the ocean at New York University, Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel Kuo. I'm a PhD candidate at New York University's Department of Media, Culture, and Communication. And I'm also on the leadership committee of the Asian American Feminist Collective. And so Rachel's here to talk to us today about both her work, but then also specifically about the work of this collective, which personally I've been very excited about seeing the press releases go out and seeing your vision for Asian American feminism seems incredibly important at this moment for reasons that we'll get into. But for listeners of our podcast, May was sort of directly linked to a couple of episodes ago where I had to go offline, unfortunately, because I was attacked by MR Asians, as we call them, and, and particularly that Asian American feminists have been targeted. So there's a couple of things that are going on that, uh, as our listeners might know, I was directly affected by. But again, like this initiative is incredibly exciting. And so how about we just start with that, uh, which is like, how about we talk about the history of Asian American feminism? Yeah, so I think this longer history of Asian American feminism, thinking about organizing spaces, both feminist organizing spaces and also uh, anti-racist organizing spaces where in feminist organizing spaces that those that tends to be dominated by white middle to upper class women. We saw that historically um, in the early in early feminist organizing and we also see that today. Right, like the ongoing ways that um, the center of these debates tends to be dominated by certain groups of people. And in anti-racist organizing, the ways that systems of sexism often like continue to permeate a lot of these spaces. And thinking about the ways that Asian American feminism really is indebted to black feminist organizing and also third world feminist movements um, in the late 60s and 70s and much longer before then. But like for me, focusing on the 60s and 70s as this moment where Asian American kind of Asian America becomes a political formation um, across pan-Asian ethnic groups. And then also thinking about this moment um, after the civil rights movement where, for example, the Third World Women's Alliance like came out of SNCC um, and the Black Women's Alliance and really having its roots in anti-imperialist, like anti-capitalist um, thought and like critiques of se- both sexism and racism through a critique of empire and the ways that Asian American feminism is connected to these threads. Thinking about what does it mean to politically form and form um, in these critiques of the ways that systems of capitalism, imperialism are at work in people's everyday lives. And I think that's part of what makes it so fascinating is that in order to deal with Asian American feminism, it's always gonna be comparative and relational, have a transnational uh, element to it as well. And I think that to go back to something you were talking about in terms of the history, I think that not all of our listeners will probably be aware that like Asian American, even as a term, has a very particular history. Would you like to get into that? Yeah, so Asian American as a term, again, coming out of the 60s and 70s when, and this is right, like also when we think about what happened in the 60s, the 1965 Immigration Act, um, for almost like it's been, it was like around 80 years, like after like, for example, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, 
which resulted in um, the bar against like Asiatic migration in the early 1900s. But suddenly in 1965, right, like we have, like the US um, has decided to quote unquote, open its doors <laughs> for Asian migration. Oh yeah, thank you. Again. <laughs> and we can think about it in the context of, um, of like, this is post-World War II during the Cold War uh, or pre-Cold War, but like the US is like suddenly thinking about like, okay, like, well, now we do want to open the doors for like for Asian migration, specifically a lot of high-skilled, like beginning to think about migration in terms of high-skilled, low-skilled labor. And so you, so the US is opening like the doors in these ways simultaneously also creating um, and manifesting the expansion of borders like within its own hemisphere. So often something that isn't as much thought about, right, is that as the U.S. is like expanding migration in from Asia, it's definitely also limiting migration in from Latin America and the mm. Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like this moment, right, like where a lot of race making is occurring given different shifts in immigration laws. So who is allowed to migrate and move um, and also access like like U.S. citizenship in a particular way. And so within like the Asian American political formations too, um, in different areas, what is radical about this, right? If we think about the histories of imperialism in Asia, the ways that um, like Japanese American and Chinese American, um, like migrants are coming together, like in the US and building alliances does become a more like if we think about it in the context of the histories of imperialism in Asia, like that becomes a kind of radical formation of these alliances. Um, and also thinking, right, like more even, like more so the ways that people are building um, both like Philippine X, uh, American groups, et cetera, and like forming these alliances to think about what does it mean to come together under this umbrella of Asian American to struggle against the ways that the US continues to marginalize um, immigrants and migrants coming in as perpetual foreigners and also seeking for different inclusions, like beyond just citizenship, right? Like whether Mm -hmm. that's inclusion culturally, um, like inclusion within the uh, educational system in all of these different ways. And so so we can think about that long arc of history, but Asian America as also given that it's a political formation, also one that is like constantly in formation, like always in this process of becoming and shifting and transforming. And we can see that today, the ways that Asian America continues to be something that people are negotiating, trying to understand what it means um, politically in this, in our particular moment. Yeah. And I guess like, for instance, like even the term Asian American was uh, coined at, at Berkeley, if I, if uh, my memory is serving correctly, that often people who don't know about the histories do realize that there's something that's very odd about the term because they look maybe at a map of the world and they're like, wait, geographically, Asia is such a big space. There's so many different peoples, and yet it's sort of lumped together under Asian American. And the sort of answer is yes. And that was a sort of a, a conscious effort that there needed to be some sort of organizing principle under which people could have a type of political voice. And one thing I find useful for my students to for to put this into perspective and sort of to question like Asian American as a neutral term or one that's just so happened to pop up historically is that of course at the turn of the 20th century like Asians and Japanese were different categories on the census is I think a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah, 
Definitely, yeah, we can see that too, just in the ways that, even in the ways that the U.S. has defined Asianness, right? Like, has tended to be like who it's in war with, like mm-hmm. who it's at war with, and who, um, as a nation, like defining who was enemy and versus like who is friend, which I think is like where your point about Japanese like being a separate category, right? Like given. Um, the history of like the U.S.'s shifting relationship with Japan from the gentlemen's like the quote unquote gentlemen's agreement, like allowing Japanese people to potentially settle um, and facilitate the expansion of colonialism um, in Hawaii, and then like during World War II, the incarceration and um, and internment of Japanese Americans. Mm-hmm. There tends to be this interesting shift between who are the quote unquote good Asians versus the bad Asians. And it sort of perhaps mm-hmm. underlines the way that uh, one's relative security in relation to whiteness is never is never certain. Uh, yes. Yeah, and I guess another important thing is because we're talking about the the way that Asian American has acted as an important label. Would you like to talk a bit about the way that in the U.S. in particular we have this the category of Asian American Pacific Islander? Yeah. So Asian American Pacific Islander, and we can think about. Again, you brought up the census earlier, like this question of what does it mean right, to label particular groups of people in these institutional ways um, in order for different groups be, to be able to advocate for different resources, um, like via the state or via other institutional systems. And I think Asian American Pacific Islander as an example of that as this demographic category that emerged but also doesn't neatly fit. Right, because the ways that Asian America and Pacific Islanders are constructed, it's a very different relationship um, to the nation state. And so, for example, um, Pacific Islanders, like given the ways that like the U.S. in colonial expansion has taken ancestral lands from Pacific Islander folks, right, and like and using mm-hmm. um, Asians who migrate over to facilitate that expansion of empire right like so often like asian american and seeking access to claims of citizenship in in many ways continues to disenfranchise pacific islanders Mm -hmm. of of land and like claims to land and claims to sovereignty and so there's a very different so both of these groups are very different in terms of in terms of at least their relationship vis-a-vis the nation state and i think there are possible alliances, right, in the ways that Asian American Pacific Islander groups can come together, yet, right, like lumping them together and saying, oh, AAPI issues is also something that tends to erase the the need, like the specific needs of Pacific Islander communities. Yeah, and so there's been a push in progressive Asian American social justice circles for the disaggregation of these categories. And... Yeah, I don't know what the what the status is of that, but I guess maybe the when did you last fill in the census and what boxes did you have to check? I actually don't think I think when I the last census was happening, um, I was like in a state of movement and flux. I think given my status as a graduate student, like often housing things are mm. a little bit less. Uh, less stable. So yes, I, I filled it out since um, I think since I was like younger and maybe with my parents. So I think I don't have a specific relationship to the census. 
or like a specific personal relationship to like to filling it out. Mm-hmm. I, and I guess d- does that inform perhaps your own work in thinking about Asian Americanness? Like that, I guess perhaps these different layers of like governmental surveillance versus community. I think so. I think it's interesting because I think this particular moment as well, or I think actually, so thinking about my own relationship with the term Asian America has also, right, like if we think about the larger state of it always being in transformation and flux and in this process of becoming as people kind of negotiate what that means to be both racially positioned and politically positioned, um, vis-a-vis like Asian-ness, like that for me has also been something that has shifted in how I understand it. And I think part of that has also been like how I've thought about this as an identity, both initially as like a more a cultural identity, right? Like coming into it, like really thinking about what connection does this like give me in relation to my parents and like relation to their histories of migration and relation to like the cultures that I um, grew up in to really thinking about it as also one that is political and has a political history. And then given thinking about it more politically, right, like there's different navigations of what that means also in terms of both ethnicity, citizenship status, immigration status, class, and all of these things that largely also are uneven dynamics within Mm -hmm. the group, right? And I'm someone who is Taiwanese, like I'm in graduate school. And so there's like a certain kind of like different positioning right, that I have, um, like, given the many communities that, like, make up, like, what Asian America is, and, like, also um, pushes for, like, rethinking, like, well, what are those alliances, like, who gets centered, um, like, who are people who are more directly impacted by different systems of state violence. Yeah, and what's been interesting for me, so as someone who's Chinese-Canadian, who then, like, did Asian American studies, and so perhaps sort of uses the unwieldy for a term Asian North American coming to the UK. It's the the language about it and the framing, of course, is so different because of the different uh, histories of diaspora. I think that one way that we often talk about the flattening out of Asian American as a term has uh, is usually one way we talk about it is that often we're just talking about East Asians as opposed to like Southeast Asians or South Asians. But then in the UK, Asian pretty much means uh, South Asian usually. And uh, I was reading a history of political blackness in multiracial Britain, and like Chinese, for instance, was not considered under the category of Asian until 2011, for instance, which is wildly different. And also, I think it's like when I chalk off boxes here, it's interesting to see the categories that Chinese is also its own separate category from Asian. And negotiating that has been has been very interesting, like sort of my sense of self and also my training in a particular field doesn't quite does not map on at all and so I'm trying sort of trying to figure like oh now I should just I need to educate myself about all these other discourses and other geographical region now that we have the backdrop of this history what do you think is the particular need of the Asian American feminist collective in this moment and could you tell us a, a bit about your members yeah so for like given right like as some of the things that we've talked about, like these different histories of diaspora, histories of migration, that really make up a lot of different inequalities, unevenness, and even the construction of Asian America. Like one of the things that I think, like as the Asian American Feminist Collective that we are thinking through is like already what is, 
the meaning of coll of collectivity and how we navigate right like the formation of a collective under both Asian America and also feminism. And one of the things that we've been actively really thinking through is like, well, what does it mean to even invoke uh, we, right? And to invoke we as a kind of political possibility and like the distinctions of like who was included and we and us when we're defining our collective, given that there's a lot of inequalities of power like within our groups, um, differences right across like class, gender, religion, um, history, and like the different like asymmetrical encounters with state violence. And I think, like for us, that's something to constantly navigate of like how, right, like if we're gonna continue to use this as the call to community, mm -hmm. um, which I think for me, the reason that I'm like, that we still orient right around Asian American fem feminism as a collective is that like feeling that there is political value mm -hmm. in in Asian American, like as as a political formation, yet within that, like there's a lot of different things to navigate and address like given the differential um formations of racialization and colonization like under under these terms so for us like as the asian american feminist collective like the main things that we do is community building and also political education through different events and putting together resources etc and really thinking about well what are the ways that like through like highlighting different voices from our communities, like whether that's like community leaders and organizers, artists and writers, um, like filmmakers, et cetera, and or like putting together like different literatures and books and, and reframing a lot of like these different political commitments and trying to kind of come up um, and negotiate like these ever shifting dynamics um, through, through producing resources, like to try to kind of get at some of these these tensions and contradictions, like when it comes to trying to produce this question of we. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the early work right now is like thinking about like shared and key definitions, values, commitments, et cetera, that even given the differences within, like what are the things that we that we do share, but how do we engage um, difference in a more productive way. Yeah. So how many members are there and what sort of forms of difference are you negotiating? What sort of backgrounds do people come from in terms of like the arts? Like it sounds like primarily uh, people come from arts based backgrounds, that is. Yeah. So right now our membership is it is growing. So we have four people on the leadership uh, committee right now. And so that's like primarily like those of us who are putting in more of the time and curating the different events and their resources. And then we have a broader network of the collective of, um, of people who are also involved in other community organizations and primarily give their time um, in those spaces. So like we have friends like in the Bangladeshi Feminist Collective, Chinese Feminist Collective, um, like other community organizations that we regularly work with. And then beyond that, like also more of an open membership structure of like people who join us at our events, like at smaller socials and small group discussions. And so one of the things that we're also navigating and figuring out right now is this question of like, how do you structure a collective and something that is always ever evolving and growing? And I think for me personally, like now having spent some time doing archival research on Asian American political formations, like seeing a lot of parallels in how we're negotiating organizational structure 
along with the ways that like other groups like in these kind of nascent formations like going from a political vision to organizational structure and how do you manifest that vision and the ways that an organization functions and does its work and moves forward and I think for us something that we're also like really thinking about is that in our current media landscape right like our group even though it exists in New York City it definitely must like also very much exists in a digital space Hmm. or the ways that like our work is made visible is how it exists on like different platforms which are right like namely like this like corporate platforms like Facebook Twitter and Instagram but like the communities that we participate in um, the people that we engage with like are also like one of the ways right like because we can't have events every day but like we're also engaging with people like in digital spaces and thinking about the digital as a space and not just as a tool. Mm-hmm. And I think, but given that, right, like in the temporality of online spaces has a different kind of temporality than when you're trying to sit and really think about like broader and long-term vision and structure in terms of like how you respond to like different events, different moments um, that are that are constantly like inundating us politically. Yeah. And I think what's um, interesting to me and what makes us particularly necessary is that it also seems like we're in a different moment of Asian, Asian diasporic organizing in general, particularly around Trump. And here I'm thinking about sort of the rise of what uh, Chinese Chinese Americans for Trump. And like mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of conversations in like national American media talking about the different Chinese digital forms, particularly. I think, like, is it WeChat? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Yeah. As one of them, would you like to talk a bit about that? So, like, on the one hand, we have what you guys are doing, but then there's all these other forces that are going on, like, with sort of this, a cultural moment of organizing. Yeah. So, and the platform that you mentioned, so there's WeChat, which is largely um, Chinese, um, Chinese and Chinese American communities. There's also Line, which is like largely Korean. Um, WhatsApp sometimes gets used as well. And I think it's also this moment, right, um, thinking about, again, we talked about histories of migration and stories of migration, the ways that also the ethno-nationalism that Mm -hmm. really comes, that is circulating within these spaces. So the kind of like organizing around self-interest and also though, right, like the kind of power and resources of like a really wealthy transnational elite people also being able to like migrate over in this time right and like how that kind of circulates in these online spaces and not all people who participate on wechat are are wealthy right like but they definitely like there's like that kind of level like that kind of dynamic that's happening and so like for especially for immigrants like coming in who primarily read and engage with um, with ethnic media or like Chinese language media, for example, if we're thinking about the Chinese community and WeChat, like WeChat becomes a space that um, that is accessible in terms of language and also has these like ties at least to this idea of home. Mm-hmm. And so and so for me, I can't speak as much about the nitty gritty of WeChat, right? Because given also the ways of thinking how I'm positioned, I don't have access to it in the ways that I think like other people might, I also like am unable to read 
Chinese, but like knowing like the kind of pull that WeChat has in organizing um, and really organizing this kind of uh, more conservative Asian, um, like Asian political formation. Yeah. And, and conservative in terms of like how, of like the self-interest. I think it's so interesting because after, as we sort of open talking about the history of Asian American feminism, it's like, Nestle wants to say a new wave of migration, but part of a new wave of migration is able to come in without having those particular histories of uh, solidarity and of coalition, which then uh, created the conditions that allowed this new generation to come in. Like there, people are sort of reaping the benefits of another generation of, of activism that goes across uh, across it, not just uh, expands beyond Asianness and talking about like uh, African American identity and other forms of organizing, and so they're coming in after this work has been done, and not having that same sort of comparative sense of their own positioning uh, in relation to power. This what seems to me in part. Yeah, and and maybe also part of it, like, and if we think about waves of migration, also very much constituted by like the ways that the US like particularly invests in, mm. in in people of particular class backgrounds of educational backgrounds to come over right like if you're coming in and you already have a kind of relative like relative status of power in relation right like to other to other migrants who have come in like based on the kind of based on the kind of like social dynamics of which like one has migrated like it's also I think in terms of the visions of like, well, like why, right? Like, is there unevenness if like I'm able to kind of like migrate and like build something for myself? Mm -hmm. So I think like that's like, like definitely there. I think even thinking, cause we've talked a lot about like the longer history, I feel like in the kind of post sixties and seventies moment and after the kind of institutionalization I feel of Asian America and this is also been like kind of like thought through in different histories of um, Asian American political formations, but this kind of like turn to the professional class mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s as well, um, leading into this moment. Like, so we can kind of see the ways that like some Asian American like political organizing like is very much in the realm of um, of professional industries, right? Like where people call for inclusion into into like Silicon Valley leadership, inclusion into mainstream Hollywood, inclusion in like different professional spaces. Um, yet the kind of stakes of like, and the narrower, uh, the narrower visions I think of those calls like tend to elide the kind of broader ways mm -hmm. that there continue to be economic divisions, um, differential access to material resources, et cetera, and like the community at large. Yeah, it's sort of like we're continuing to see the continued sedimentation of the sort of model minority mentality, which of course is like both um, anti-black and, and settler, but it's, it's continued to be amplified by these ongoing tensions. And I think that one thing that we should address is of course uh, the Edward Blum uh, affirmative action case about Harvard uh, as a particular uh, has been a sort of a flashpoint for a type of Asian American organizing, which groups like the, the Collective and 18 Million Rising have been trying to push against. Would you like to give an overview of that? Yeah, I think thinking about so Edward Bloom and like right, like the broader goal of him trying to repeal affirmative action, and if we think about affirmative action since its instantiation has been something that has like has been eroding because of the ways of 
um, this myth, right, like since affirmative action that we're like post-racial now that we have these tools, like this as a tool um, for racial equality. So um, the ways that like, for example, like even the Baki case, right, like kind of claiming um, like that there's like discrimination against like white people uh, who are who are like seeking entrance in the schools and prior to Edward Blum's um, case of case at Harvard and the uses of Asian American people like to advance his case like he also tried to do this in Texas with um, uh, with like a young white woman Abigail Fisher yeah yeah. and so but if we think about also Edward Bloom so the time that he begins to raise this case is also in the fall of 2014 or like where it's really gaining traction in terms of how people are paying attention to it um, ways that it's being discussed. It's happening in the fall of 2014, which is also in conjunction with um, with the Black Lives Matter movement and and like a very national attention to the impact of police brutality um, and anti-blackness, like in this like at the state level, right? Like which even though that's like always been there, this just like where you know like police brutality has existed long mm-hmm. before 2014. Um, but it's also in this moment, right? Like yeah. right after Michael Brown's murder in Ferguson, Missouri, um, and like a series of like other shootings and incidents. So when we think about 2014 in this context, um, and Edward Bloom thinking, like pushing forward this agenda to repeal affirmative action, like through using Asian Americans, like to advance the case that affirmative action is racist against Asian Americans. There's also this moment already that people are paying attention and discussing the different the very differential ways that um, racism differently impacts people based on um, based on their relationship vis-a-vis state violence and so so like right also around that time like there's this hashtag that was that was like put forward as a way to kind of negotiate these discourses so like Jen Fang started like I am not your wedge and then it like slowly has like changed into not your wedge, but really thinking about the uses of Asianness as a wedge category to prevent like cross community solidarities mm-hmm. or the uses again of like Asianness as a tool to advance white supremacy and to perpetuate um, to perpetuate like anti-black narratives or anti-black um, like an anti-black politics or the uses of Asianness to um, erode civil rights like for like other communities of color. So like the conversation like around Edward Bloom and affirmative action like really turned to also the question of like, well, how has Asianness been used as both a tool to either counter white supremacy or to facilitate its expansion? So I think like that, like if we think about the context around that time, that was something that was happening and also occurring around the same time and spaces when Soya Jung was also talking about the model minority mutiny. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I actually hadn't put together that there was the, how it's so coeval in 2014 is so important, which of course goes back for, for the sake of our listeners, like the term model minority was coined by sociologist William Peterson at the moments of the gains of the civil rights movements led by um, African-Americans to and then elevate like Asian-Americans, particularly like East, East Asians, as the good ones, the good people of color uh, versus like the uh, black people as being the bad ones because who are trying to uh, get political um, action in place. And so it seems sadly, sadly resonant that that happens yet again with like the Black Lives Matter emerging as such a major movement that 
there's ways that Asian Americanness is being marshaled as being reactionary and the way that so many buy into it, I think is like what is the particularly sad part of it. And there's something that's perhaps very seductive about being so close to acceptance for whiteness that I, I sometimes think about that people would rather, yeah, rather collude with power than try to seek alternate forms of sociality and perhaps other forms of politics than, than just inclusion. But that's, that's definitely sort of my bias in that regard. <laughs> what other hashtags should people be aware of in terms of this, this recent history? Yeah. Um, so I think like there's like thinking, and it's not even that long of a history, but thinking about like the conversations that have occurred in terms of Asian American political formation in in our more recent digital landscape, like where thinking about hashtags and like this in the formation of different um, different politics, like in relation to these like discursive shifts of like what is like Asian America politically. Like in 2012, um, I'm not sure how people might remember it or how you might remember it, but there was of course like not your Asian sidekick. Mm -hmm. And that was like this kind of like space making hashtag that was thinking about like, well, also like what is Asian American feminism in this moment? Um, And that was this kind of like call that was happening um, and started by Sui Park who for a number of reasons, like is not active or Mm -hmm. publicly online. Um, But in 2012, there was Not Your Asian Sidekick. And I do want to kind of like name that because there was also, if we think about this um, in the context context of academia, right? Like that came after Solidarity is for White Women, like started by Mickey Kendall. And so again, this kind of like discussion of like, well, Asian American political formation in relation to the ways that also these conversations were happening like by like by black feminist like thinkers and writers like in our present moment and so like there was that in 2012 in 2014 there's like not your wedge i am not your wedge model minority mutiny as i've mentioned also the apis for black lives and asians for black lives which really emerged um thinking about the incident in new york city where nypd officer peter liang like shot and killed akai Gurley. And like that as another major flashpoint um, in terms of in terms of thinking about Asian American politics. Again, like right, like in, there's something to think about this like in conversations with what was happening with affirmative action at Harvard, but like where a lot of um, Chinese American people did come out in support of Peter Liang mm-hmm. um, when Liang was indicted versus this idea of like seeking police accountability more generally and and so Asians for Black Lives like as a kind of counter to that to think about like what does that mean though for like Asians to like very seriously like divest from proximities like to whiteness and as you said like right like kind of like seeking acceptance, like through um, through a kind of like investment in whiteness, and to really like divest from that and think about like what like what does it mean to practice solidarity with Black communities? Um, and this is happening like in New York City, but also was like a national conversation. So I think like that as a kind of conversation that is happening. And if we think about now, four years later, it's 2018 for the Asian American left and Asian American radical politics there's that sustained discussion of 
um, like for Asian Americans who are thinking about politics in this way to really like engage with um, with anti-blackness like within our communities and how and like renegotiating this position of like well what Asianness means like given the quote-unquote black and white binary but really redefining in the terms of like how do we divest from white supremacy and really like think about the sustained investment in black liberation as like liberation for our communities yeah and i think what's also so tricky is i feel like there's also been such a growth of online spaces that are like asian diaspora specific which are very important but sometimes i think fall into the sort of trap of ethno-nationalism as you mentioned I've actually in the past couple of weeks, I had a number of different friends who I, I care about a lot, but that have sort of added me without my permission to various like really huge fa- online Facebook groups about Asianness, about certain Asian traits and so forth. And it ends up, I find spaces like that tend to make me very uncomfortable for that dynamic. So we've been talking about the more productive aspects of, of these online, online spaces, but what would you say about uh, the way that perhaps t- forms of policing tend to emerge in these digital spaces as a sort of unfortunate corollary to perhaps uh, talking about accountability and discourse? Yeah, I think part of that, and maybe kind of pulling back, I know earlier you had asked, right, like what is also the kind of work of the Asian American Feminist Collective in trying to do? I think in positioning Asian American feminism as this kind of ever evolving space and practice and really pushing on this idea of growth is a response to that and how what does it mean to hold people accountable in ways that is it as people are learning and growing and now with social media in very public ways mm-hmm. right um and and very much of like one's politics like in these spaces is reduced to questions of text and language Um, and how someone marshals language in a particular way. And and there are like when people like quote unquote like fail to do that in in quote unquote the right way, like there tends to be, um, there tends to be like a kind of fallout like for like for people, right? And so I think really thinking about what does that mean to kind of hold people accountable in ways that allows for growth is something that like as a collective that we're really committed to and thinking about like it's taken for example me a long time to get to the ways that like I'm thinking about um, like my orientation to politics now and that's like something that continues to shift and grow and evolve and change um, like given like the communities that I'm part of like who I'm talking to like the new things that I learn and so and so there's like question right like when you bring up this idea of like, well, how do communities like place themselves? I think the kind of turn to their right and their wrong things to say, the ways that often um, often responses to harm that does happen is about excising someone from mm-hmm. the community. Um, that is not to say, right, like that often like there are forms of harm that are really toxic. And you had brought this up at the beginning of our conversation, right, about like the MR Asians and hypermasculinity that also exists on these spaces. So this, there's like the kind of like in community way where navigations of politics are being discussed in ways like of people calling each other out, right? Like, like mm-hmm. the kind of reactionary um, discourse that does happen alongside those spaces, like the other kind of, I think, policing that does happen as a very 
violent tactic, right, is the kind of silencing of um, Asian American feminists, of other like, especially like Asian American women and femmes who are pushing a different kind of like politics that some Asian American men, like through a kind of hyper masculine lens, are doing a lot of work of silencing and policing these voices um, through tactics of, um, like, through tactics of using a lot of really, like, through tactics of trolling, through tactics of circulating people's private information and different threads, like, as a, like, as a way to, like, scare people into silence. And I think, like, that's something that also exists on these spaces. Um, and if we think about Twitter as both this, as you mentioned, like a place that is, has been really useful for a productive kind of politics and like moving discourses in a certain direction. It's also a kind of like vitriolic space where people also experience the most, like a lot of like hate in online spaces as well. Mm -hmm. Because one thing, a a tactic that uh, I sometimes think about is like when someone has an issue with someone else's tweet, but they don't respond directly, but they quote the tweet. Uh, And sometimes it could be very useful, but sometimes it's interesting to see how it's being very strategically deployed to not quite have a conversation with a person, but to like shift it to being a public a performance of a conversation. And sometimes, again, it could be, I think, done in ways that are useful, but in other ways, it seems like people are trying to figure out how to build type of social capital on these mm-hmm. moments, which makes me quite uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think that observation... Um, it's really like given the ways that these platforms work and how and how people are differently valued in these spaces and the ways that if we think about a lot of these platforms as operating within a kind of like value economy around like attention, again, as you mentioned, right, like how social capital circulates in these spaces, there's also definitely, right, like a replication of different systems of power that reoccurs in these spaces as well. And I think something else interesting that you bring up, too, is this idea of performance. Like, that's also something that I think is a broader question, right, of, like, how do people engage politically and build movements in non-performative ways or in Mm. ways that Mm. isn't just about, like, one's capacity to marshal, marshal a kind of language or aesthetic, which is difficult because these platforms are very performative spaces and like often actually like the level of a lot of like the political work and movement building that is done is not visible in these ways Mm -hmm. like it's very it's like not happening um like on these public platforms but like in other it's happening in other spaces so i think that question of performance is also really interesting yeah and especially how you're saying that like it sort of complicates that like we call for transparency and accountability, but sometimes it's, it's just not happening online. That's not that these things aren't happening, but then sometimes people, sometimes it's, it's misperceived that different forms of work happen in different spaces, but perhaps there's a privileging of the digital because of the illusion of the type of access when perhaps maybe not the best space to facilitate certain forms of collectivity or organizing in particular moments. And that's like largely some of, and I don't have the answers yet, but a lot of my academic research is focused on that question of like in our current digital landscape and in the digital ecosystem, like what types of relationships, solidarities, et cetera, are possible or made limited um, given this given this landscape. Yeah, like I think that there's, I can't remember because like a couple of years ago, I think it may have been the Scarlett Johansson debacle over Ghost in the Shell, but Asian diaspora Twitter was putting these really clever memes and I saw like in 
black Twitter that there was actually some memes being created that like black Twitter looking at um, Asian Twitter as um, like a sort of an affirming nod, I think was one of the gifts. And that there's this, like there's moments we work together, but then I've also seen such moments of tension arise where people end up, it gets, it gets quite ugly, I guess. Like as much as there's potential for solidarity and solidarity is hard work enough, I've seen it happen uh, even within my, my own circles that sometimes it's easier to go for for certain forms of performance over giving people the space to to be accountable and to grow and to to not shut down further possibilities of solidarity. I'm being very vague, but um... and well, and I think part of like thinking about performance, right? Like what that doesn't allow us to really think about is like reciprocity because mm. it's like not enough and again like this is like also a kind of like vague speculation and like the kind of like thinking about um the ways that relationships at least like only online operate and so um and I'm having conversations and interviews with other people about this but I think this question right like to claim solidarity with another group there has to be a kind of reciprocity happening Mm -hmm. and so like on the level of an individual's account, right? Like what does that mean to kind of like like advance solidarity as a claim versus what does that mean to actually materialize as a relationship that is reciprocal or that beyond just the claim itself? Mm-hmm. So this has been a fantastic conversation and I'm, I'm glad that we were able to get talking about both history and also some insight into your project. And I was wondering, would you like to leave us with Anything that you're excited about that's coming out from the collective right now or anything, any new turns in your work that you you would like us to know about? Yeah, so from the collective, like there are two larger projects that we are pushing out. One is a digital storytelling project. And so the theme for our first one is like my first times and really thinking about the first times that people come into feminism, the kind of like ways that people come into their different understandings of identity, the ways that people engage with their, like, with their parents, right? Like, the first time that someone, like, kind of confronts their parents, like, and so there's a lot of different ways that people are engaging with this prompt, and so we're putting out a collection of stories, and they're not, right, from, like, they're not from people who write professionally, but, like, really, like, sourcing from across the community, so they're, like, sometimes, like, there's first-time writers, like, who are sharing their stories, but as a way to kind of think about, like, all of the different ways that people come into feminism and, like, come to be politicized, and so that should be coming out in in January. Um, we have like all a lot of the essays and stories now and we're in the process of, of compiling them. And then we also are thinking about our next zine, which will be very much focused. Like we've talked a lot about histories, but like think about the many histories that make up Asian American feminism. And one of the reasons we're thinking through this is the, the first time that we kind of put out this like call to edit our manifesto, there was a lot of conversations about like where, like which moments, right? To include historically like moments that occurred before the 1960s. And so really kind of sourcing out the many multiple histories, both political histories, personal histories, et cetera. And so that's something that we're working on as well. And then we'll have some other exciting projects that we'll unveil in terms of events and collaborations in 2019. Oh, well, it's this is so exciting. I'm really glad that we got to talk about this. And thank you again, Rachel, for being on our show. I'll be including links to all the various projects and please, uh, and also the different social media handles, because this is stuff that you guys really want to follow. Like there's a lot of interesting, exciting stuff coming out. And I think 
that it's something that we should all, everyone should be aware of. So thanks so much for joining me again today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. And take care of yourselves, listeners. 